Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's me and Kate back on today, and she has gone and found us an amazing guest. Tell us, Kate, who have you found? So we're joined today by Dr. Onyeka Nubia, the internationally recognised historian and author, who's reinventing our understanding of British history and redefining the narrative of British identity since antiquity. Onyeka is the leading historian on the status and origins of African people in Tudor, England. So welcome. Hello, hello, Kate. Hello, everyone. Hello, Elena. (laughs) So your book, Blackamoors, about African people in Tudor England, contains previously unseen historical evidence, which was, I believe, the result of 10 years of research. You studied over 250,000? 20. 20. Now, now it's 1985, so that's 25 years research. That really is a labour of love. Gosh, you're showing your age. Or, or, or something else. <laughs> or something else. A labour of love or a labour of insanity. This, either, there's a thin line, you know, between, between uh, describing someone who's committed to something and, and describing someone that's fanatical. And, and, and uh, some people might think of that as almost fanatical. Um, but then I think a certain degree of fanaticism in this subject is absolutely necessary if you're going to find... Um, stuff that's not been found or you're going to look at and discover stuff that people say can't be found I totally you agree need some of that. I totally yeah, agree you, you get that. obsessive and you start going around one rabbit hole and another yeah and and you just yeah. can't stop you just you're standing there and you're like well, there's about 50 mm. holes around me which one do I go where do I go what do I do yeah <laughs> yeah and and in this thing because because um I'm finding Africans who are embedded in English society, assimilated and integrated often, discovering them and discovering their ethnicity is often very, very difficult. Plus, um, when people write in early modern England, that's from the 15th century to the sort of 17th century, when people write, they don't write how we now write they write how they want to write and their spelling and language is particular to them. They sometimes mix French and Latin in with what they write. So it's like a polyglot mixture of languages and, um, and they use their own terminology. And all of this, of course, has to be understood and translated and deciphered and it can take a very long time. 
I don't envy you. I really don't. And I thought I had it hard when reading testimonies and thinking, why is this German and Polish? Is this German? Is this not quite sure? Yeah, I thought I had it bad. I yeah. Sorry, sorry, Kate. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's good. <laughs> let's let's get past the historical because you've we've got loads of questions to ask, haven't we, Kate? Great. Yeah. yeah um, shall I kick us off? Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah. You yeah, okay. you go for it. So you've been working to sort of recontextualize attitudes towards British ethnicity or, or origins of people throughout history. Um, one common perception is that huge parts of British history are wrongly portrayed as monoracial. Why is this? And what's a more realistic overview of the historical ethnicity of Britain? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, most of the ideas that we have about the identity or British history has been shaped by the Victorians not by all the various peoples that have lived in England. So the ideas that we have about English history are Victorian ideas. They're the ideas of the British Empire. Um, and then what the Victorians did to justify being the largest empire known in human history, which they were, um, was that they looked back in, at their own history and then tried to shape their own history to match what they had become, which meant taking shortcuts sometimes and in some cases it meant discarding aspects of their history that didn't fit the pattern that they wanted to promote so um the ideas that we have about for example british people english will being anglo-saxons or the the the, the notion of mono-ethnic englishness and um uh, queen victoria being great and queen elizabeth being great and all these sorts of people these sorts of ideas, these sorts of notions are from the Victorian era uh, and looking backwards. And they are not actually from the people at the time that lived in England who are very unsure about their own ethnicity, very unsure about their own identity and would tell you clearly that they don't know who the original people are who lived inside uh, this country. And in the Tudor period would often be quite clear and saying, we're not from the original people. We are not the original. Um, we don't know who those people were, what their ethnicity or what their color were. Um, and almost nobody else does either. They, would, they, would, they say this. Um, and they say this in their books. They actually say these sorts of things in their books. Francis Bacon, for example, says, the original inhabitants of Britannia, whether indigenous or foreign, are like most other countries, unknown. So he's saying he doesn't know. And he's also saying that he's not one of those original people. This is an old idea that's repeated constantly throughout the early modern period by English people who are unsure of their own identity. But as I said, the Victorians come along and reshape all that uncertainty and give us certainty and make us think that we know who the English are, but we don't know who the English are. Um, what we can say is that there have been lots of people in this island over this country's 2,000-year history. Lots of people. And those people have been of different ethnicities, different colors, um, different religions, uh, different cultural origins. And they've been coming and going and staying, assimilating and fighting for thousands and thousands of years. 
I find this really interesting because Mark Morris is just releasing a book about the got I'm going to try and remember the title of the book without remembering the title of the book but it talks about the idea of when the Romans had come over you had um the, the, the original Britons and the Saxons and then the you know you the conquest so what basically it's what you're saying they're coming from everywhere and even at this stage Britain is filled with not just Britons as we know them but it's being filled with you know Saxons and and Romans and and it's all kind of starting yeah. from there, really, isn't it? So who well, well, are Britons? Yeah, yes, yeah. The, the the thing is that the terms that we use to describe these people are terms formed in modernity. So they are modern terms that we use retrospectively to describe people who would not have described themselves in that way. So we think that we know who Anglo-Saxons are, but the people that we call Anglo-Saxons would not have called themselves that. They would have referred to themselves by their own tribal names. And their tribal names were various. They had family names and clan names and what have you, and they are various. They are multiple. The people that we call, um, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking of Celts, for example, are not people that would refer to themselves as such. They would have called themselves the Iceni, the Briganti. They would have called themselves the names of the tribal people and the region that they come from. But we retrospectively call them these terms. And then we monoethnically describe who they are. So we call them these terms. And then we say that these people are monoethnically something and that they have a particular color, which is usually white. And then people can use that to justify a monoethnic whiteness. And when in fact, it, it, it does. So your work in the study of African Tudors is pioneering. What made you question the version of history you were offered? Mm, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about when the Tudors are and what this term means. When we're talking about Tudor history, we're talking about Tudor England. Now, the reason why I use the word England and not Britain, because Britain didn't exist. This is really important. Britain didn't exist. There was no country called Britain. There was England. Scotland had its own kingship and, in fact, was at war with England for most of the Tudor period um, until James I. Now, Wales had its own kingship, too, but that sort of collapsed when the Tudors came in to rule England, and that's because the Tudors were Welsh. The, well, the word Tudor comes from a, a Welsh name, which is the name of the Welsh family who the Tudors were. Henry VII came from Wales. They're a mixture of French and Welsh noble aristocracy. And th it is this people who became the Tudors that ruled England, this Tudor family. Now, they ruled from 1485 to 1603, quite a short period of time. First monarch was Henry VII, and the last was Elizabeth I. Um, Elizabeth I was the grand, yeah, the granddaughter of Henry VII. So it's one family, starting with Henry VII, ending in Elizabeth I. Why is this period important? Because it is the beginning of what we call the early modern period. We are now in the modern period, but it's the beginning of the early modern period. In other words, the ideas, the concepts that we now have about the world were being formed in England and in other parts of Europe at this time. And that's why it's called the early modern period which is another generic term. And it's called the Tudor period because the Tudor family were the Tudor ruling dynasty. Henry VII was a usurper. 
right? He was not the rightful um, uh, legal king. He came in in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth Field, destroyed the body of Richard III. They li literally destroyed it, cut it up into pieces um, and made himself king. So he usurped the throne. That meant that he was unsure of himself on the throne. And it explains why his son, Henry VIII, was also unsure on the throne. And there were many other noble English families present in England who felt that they should be on the throne. And they continue to feel that they should be on the throne throughout the whole Tudor dynasty. And all the Tudors lived under that insecurity. And it, it helps to explain a lot of the reasons why they did what they did which was sometimes very strange things because they were unsure. They were uncertain because their father or grandfather, if, if it's the, uh, the case of Elizabeth and Mary, that they knew that they, that, that person, Henry VII, had acquired the throne by usurping, by uh, military means. And they knew that the throne rested uneasy on their heads. They knew this. Okay, so, so these... Um, Tudors were uncertain and insecure. Their insecurity made them reach out sometimes to foreign rulers to establish relationships, trade agreements, to try and shore up their English, or their English power. It also made them at times rather draconian. So they did brutal acts. Mary was known for her brutality. Elizabeth I was known for her brutality. And Henry VIII was known for his brutality. What Henry VII attempted to do right from the very beginning is form an alliance with Spain. Why Spain? Number of reasons. First of all, Spain was part of an empire ruled by Charles V. Um, Charles V was the most powerful man in Europe. He controlled parts of Spain as well as parts of Germany. And his empire was known as the Holy Roman Empire. He was also connected to the Spanish royal family who had in 1492 su successfully conquered the last Moorish stronghold of Granada in Andalusia and incorporated those Moorish people within what was then the new country of Spain. Spain quickly became a superpower, allied with the Holy Roman Empire, and Portugal became a superpower. And those three nations, the Holy Roman Empire, Spain and Portugal, were the three most dominant nations in Europe, not England. Henry VII was well aware of that and wanted to form an alliance with these three nations, but couldn't form an alliance with Portugal without angering Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, but so chose Spain and the Holy Roman Empire instead of Portugal. He also understood, and this is a strange thing that I have to explain to you, that the noble line of Castile, which was one of the Spanish noble families, that line also had an English connection in that Edward I, Edward I, some of Edward I, King of England's descendants were now resident in Spain through marriage. This meant that Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of um, King Ferdinand and Isabella, king and queen of Spain, that Catherine of Aragon actually had a greater right 
to rule in England than Henry himself had, even though she was Spanish. This is mind. You've you've what you've just done, okay, is taken something from the modern historian who's sitting here going, "Wow!" and just gone bang. You've made my mind blow completely. Right, right. So Henry VII chose Catherine because Catherine legitimised his throne because she was a direct descendant of Edward the First, Second, and Third King of England, even though she was Spanish, and she knew it. She knew she was which is why he only divorced her and didn't cut her head off, because he couldn't, um, Henry, her son, uh, his son. So he arranged a marriage initially, Henry VII initially arranged a marriage with Catherine of Aragon with his eldest son, Arthur. But Arthur died. So then, sort of fait accompli, he arranged another marriage between Catherine and Henry VIII. Yeah, that was the idea. Now, the Spain that Catherine of Aragon was coming from was a multi-ethnic nation, a diverse nation. It is a nation in which people of African and Arabian descent, if we can use that term, had been dominant for more than 700 years in independent kingdoms. These independent kingdoms are, were colloquially known as Moorish kingdoms. They were never united as one, but they were separate kingdoms. In the 13th century, for example, a group of people from West Africa, from what is now Mali um, uh, and Guinea-Bissau, known as the Amorovids, invaded North Africa, and then they also invaded the Iberian Peninsula and formed a composite part of this Moorish population. So this Moorish population were not just people from North Africa. They were also people from West Africa as well. This is really important. Within these Moorish kingdoms, from the time of the later Reconquest, and the, re the term Reconquest is a name given to the period when the white Christian rulers in northern Spain attempted to conquer back the Iberian Peninsula from the Moorish rulers. And they give this name called, this term called the Reconquesta. During the Reconquesta, the Moorish kingdoms became places where other minority groups went to be free, free from the Catholic, Catholic um, doctrinaire systems that existed in northern Spain. So Jewish people came to um, uh, southern Spain and settled in those Moorish kingdoms. Um, Protestants from France and other places came within the Moorish kingdoms and settled there. This meant that these Moorish kingdoms developed a very, very diverse, rich, cultural um, uh, framework. Um, they are the people, for example, who first began to translate the Greek and Roman texts into Arabic, first of all, and then into other European languages. This is really important because this translation of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and everything else kick-started the Renaissance. And it began in the Iberian Peninsula first with these 
um, uh, translators writing and uh, sometimes speaking in Arabic. Now, this kingdom, these kingdoms, as I said before, the last Moorish kingdom was conquered by Ferdinand and Isabella. They were kings of Spain. They are the father and mother of Catherine of Aragon. The Spain that Catherine was coming from was a multi-ethnic nation. Even when they conquered the last Moorish stronghold of Granada. When Catherine of Aragon came to England, she brought with her this same multi-ethnic Moorish entourage that was coming from her society. So she brought with her, for example, Catalina de Motril. Catalina de Motril came with her. Um, Catalina de Motril was a Moorish lady in waiting, part of that Moorish population. John Blank almost certainly came as also as a result and was part of her entourage. And in the other accounts, we have other evidence of people of African descent who were part of this Moorish entourage, even though we don't know their names. Uh, we can suspect that many of our ladies-in-waiting were of that ethnic um, heritage by the way that they are described. Yeah. Now, she also created an avenue, an avenue by which Moorish people from the Iberian Peninsula could travel to England. They traveled along the same route that she came, and they settled in places like Plymouth, where she settled, where she first came. They settled in places like Barnstable. They came to places like Hatherley. Um, they came to places such as Exeter. And, of course, they came to Bristol. And then they moved up into other places like London, etc., and they went further north. So Catherine creates an, a window through which those Moorish people from the Iberian Peninsula could travel to England and settle in England. But Iberian Moorish people had been traveling to England before Catherine of Aragon came. Um, but of course, her facilitation, her um, um, uh, arrival in England helped to encourage that process. So she brought with her an entourage. But there's something else that's external to this or, or, or connected to this. From 1492, even before then, the Moorish people that existed in the Iberian Peninsula were subject to persecution by Christian Catholic authorities. The Inquisition, what people may not know about, the Inquisition was created specifically to target Moorish people. It also, of course, targeted um, uh, heretics, Protestants, um, uh, as they later became, um, uh, Jewish people, um, and others accused of witchcraft and, and what have you. But the primary target were the Moorish people of the Iberian Peninsula. And the thing that they instituted was a, a system called Sangri Azul, which is the purity of the blood. It is an idea that in order to pass you have to be able to show your blue veins. And those that did pass were part of the blue vein society. And to show your blue veins, you had to have an absence of menelin, an absence of pigmentation. If your pigmentation hid your, your blue veins, then you couldn't pass. This meant that from 1492 all the way up until the 1630s, Spain became quite an intolerable place for Moorish people to live. And yet they still managed to survive there. But many didn't. Many left the Iberian Peninsula. 
Some went to France. Some went to North Africa. Some went to West Africa. Some went to what is now Italy. Some went into the Ottoman Empire. And of course, some came to England. I'm... I don't know what to say because you've just turned my knowledge of history completely upside down. And I'm so fascinated with what you want what, what you are saying. I'm totally and utterly engrossed at this point that I'm quite happy to just let you talk for the next two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so um, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to be listening from me and Kate. Um, this is it. You're going to be the star of the show completely. Okay, so let's move on to some of the questions that we have. So what are the reactions you experienced when you started your research? And were you faced with criticism or scepticism? And are you still? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Um, So I I started my research at at college. And um, uh, when I was at college, I was taught, you know, the usual kind of, European stroke English history, which is a sort of monoethnic white history. Um, and then, because I didn't have much else to draw upon at that time, I, I started to read and reread Shakespeare. Um, and Shakespeare is full of references to Africans. I'm not just talking about plays like Othello, uh, where people would expect. But th- it is full of, even in Romeo and Juliet, like a rich jewel in an Ethiop's ear. Um, uh, th- there are constant references to Africans. Um, uh, what, what is the phrase? Um, oh, black men are beauteous. Uh, uh, yeah, black men are beauteous pearls in women's eyes. There's so many references uh, to, to Africans and blackness throughout um shakespeare's plays and i used to wonder why is that why would you keep referencing people who don't exist is it that you know it's like something fantastic like unicorns that that you've never seen before and you imagine them in a fantastic way as some historians or, or english majors claim that you know they just imagined these black people and that's why they kept referring to them because they'd never seen them and and they'd never known them uh, and it was just part of their imagination and i swallowed that for about 6 months <laughs> but then i just read more and more and more and and then i i came across a play by William Shakespeare called uh, Titus Andronicus. The play is actually set in third or fourth century Rome, but it's a Renaissance play with Renaissance ideas. And there's a character in it called Aaron, who's a Moorish person. And this Aaron uh, doesn't much like the white Romans that he's sort of living amongst and believes himself to be superior, ethnically superior. Um, uh, to them and considers that his blackness makes him superior for example he says coal black is better than another hue in that it scorns to bear another hue for all the water in the sea's wide ocean can never turn the swan's black legs to white although she leave them hourly in the flood so he's saying here that his blackness is superior to their whiteness Uh, and he actually speaks in derogatory terms referring to white people so i thought this is interesting you might imagine somebody but would you imagine 
somebody to that much detail? Would you, would you, would you go into so much? Um, it, these, these words that Aaron is speaking in Titus Andronicus seem to be the words of people who were living at the time who had been transcribed and trans whatever into this play. For example, um, Aaron would say that his white counterparts are as, <laughs> as plain as the boards that you paint outside an alehouse. So he would say that their faces are flat and ugly. And I thought that this is a, these, these, these sorts of terminologies we've, we've never heard. This is almost looking at the ethnography of somebody from the time who happens to be African. But how can this be if it's just a white man imagining these ideas? So, so okay, I, I put that to one side. Then I re-looked again at Othello. And I looked at the things, some of the things that Othello says and some of the ideas that Othello has. I said, okay, um, I know he's a fictitious character, but some of his some of the issues that he has seem to be the kinds of issues that a person of African descent would have in 16th century Europe. And then if you, if you carry on, you find people of African descent like the Moorish um, um, uh, or the Prince of Morocco in um, The Merchant of Venice. He, he says, mislike me not for my complexion. And you, you see all these other in Caliban, who's, who he says that his mother is, um, is, is from uh, North Africa um, and who also has a kind of perspective about his own ethnicity. And so I thought these fictitious characters, they couldn't just fall from the moon. They had to be based on somebody. But nobody was writing about uh, these people with any kind of surety, any kind of confidence. So uh, I just put it to one side. Then I came across two books. The first book um, was by David McRitchie called Britain's Ancient and Modern, a book written in the 19th century. It's a book with immense problems in it. <laughs> the way it's written is really difficult to read. But he speculates that in England at this time, there were people of African descent. Not only does he speculate, he also says that this population was large in number and were across, you know, lived across the country and he also claims that Elizabeth I tried to deport them. It's what he says in his book. It's a 19th century book. So I said, okay, this is interesting. Um, but, but the thing is that that book doesn't have a single reference in it. <laughs> it's written like a novel. So when you read it, there's nothing. Well, where did he get that information from? Where did he get that from? Where did he, there's nothing. There's no sources for you to go and do more research with. All right, so I put that to one side. Then Peter Fryer's Staying Power um, was published. Um, Peter Fryer's book is a book that a lot of people think is a really good book about black British history. Now, Peter Fryer's book is good about the 18th, 19th and early 20th century. It's not so good about the 16th century. In Peter Fryer's um, uh, Staying Power, he suggests that there were people of African descent in England, but he says that they were all slaves. Yeah, there were some, a few, not many, a few, but they were all slaves. But at least he's saying that they existed. Right, so put that to one side. So by about 1991, I sort of made up my mind that I wasn't going to find a book that explained this presence. 
So I was going to have to do the work, the research myself, if I was going to find this population. So I started looking at primary sources and it was very, very difficult because it meant going to local archives and reading all the parish records in those archives to see if you could find somebody referred to as an African. Second of all, second problem, the Victorians went through some of these archives and destroyed some of the original records. And in other cases, they created what we call bishops transcripts. <laughs> these bishops transcripts are summaries of the records that have removed offending matters that the Victorians didn't like. So, for example, um, there'd be a, a single parent mother uh, who'd had a child out of wedlock, which happened quite frequently. That would be erased from the 19th century Victorian records. Or you had somebody put to death um, uh, for some offence or some crime. That would also be erased um, from the bishop transcript records. And their ethnicity was often frequently erased. But that's sometimes all that would be sometimes presented to you as oh this is the official record i said this is not the official record this is the 19th century bishop's transcript i want to see the original records now to see the original records written in the 15th and the 16th century by english men mostly uh, by english men one has to write a business case one has to prove that one is worthy um, academically to look at these records now that's what i had to do and it's took sometimes a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to get the permission to look at the records. But I started to get those permissions and started to do that. So the first sort of set of records that I examined were those from the West Country, um, from uh, what is now Plymouth, Barnstable, um, uh, Cornwall, uh, uh, records within Cornwall, Devon, uh, the West Country. Um, and initially I didn't know where to look in those records. So I didn't have much luck. So I put that to one side. So then I thought, okay, perhaps the presence in Tudor England mirrors the presence that exists now today. And the population in Britain today is ethnically diverse in the major cities like Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, London, etc. So I thought, okay, perhaps what I'll do is I'll look at these cities, look at Manchester, or Birmingham, or Liverpool. So I went to those places to look for those. I didn't find a single, single, didn't find one. And then I suddenly realized Liverpool in the 15th or 16th century was a village, very small village that nobody would want to live in. So it may not have had a diverse population. Manchester was a very small town in the 15th or 16th century. And Birmingham, too, was a very small place. So I was looking at the wrong places. So I thought, OK, let, let, let me change my perspective and find the 10 or 15 biggest towns in Tudor England. And let me start with that, which is what I did. So they were places like London, Plymouth, Bristol. Um, uh, uh, Exeter, um, um, Lancaster, um, places like that. 
And when I started to look at these places in a concerted effort, I began to find um, these people of African descent in almost all those places that I've just mentioned, from Chichester um, to Salisbury um, uh, to, to Northampton to Nottingham, um, um, all of those places, I, I found Africans. And I found Africans living in the center of those towns and cities. And then um, my research led me to find Africans living in country areas like Holt in Worcestershire um, and all places like that. And that blew my mind because I was expecting to find them in Bristol or whatever, but to find them in small remote places, that was something else. Wow, it's this is fascinating. Um, and so, I mean, so, you've got obviously got done so much research and got so much knowledge that we're kind of um, wondering whether we even need to have questions prepared. <laughs> we could have just uh, just uh, freestyled, I think. But um, I'm going to skip on a bit, and uh, I want to ask you about the people of these people of different ethnic origins who were coming. Um, coming into these places, would they have brought their own traditions like food and clothes or religion? Um, would they have brought that with them or would they have adopted those of the place where they were living? Thank you. Very good question. Um, uh, I'll give an example. Um, there is a famous, and he should be more famous, African needle maker. Um, he, he's known as the African that would not teach his art to any. That's how he's described. Um, because he had this gift for making steel Spanish needles because he came from the Iberian Peninsula. And he lived in Cheapside in the years 1553 to 1558. And he had his own little practice in making steel Spanish needles from his cultural tradition. Now, these steel Spanish needles helped to revolutionize um, the cloth making industry. But he wouldn't teach anybody how to make the needles. He just had it as a craft. And that's how he learned his living, by, by making these Spanish needles. Now, this is, this is an example of someone who brings with them a culture that is superior in many ways, technologically, to the culture that is already existing within England. And his skill is recognized as superior to such an extent that they want him to teach the people who are around him. But he refuses to teach them, and he continues to ply his trade and promote his own professionalism. So it's an example of what we might call the interaction of the Moorish culture that he is bringing and the English culture that he was living with. And it shows an interaction that some people would consider to be impossible that his, his culture has, in fact, got a higher technological um, expertise than the culture that he's living in. It's the opposite of what people might expect. I'll give another example. Uh, John Blank appears on the Westminster Tournament Roll of 1511 twice, twice. The Westminster Tournament Roll was created to celebrate the birth of the son of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. Yes, they had a son, um, but the son didn't live very long. The celebrations were created as an example of England being fashionable, England being part of European fashions and trends. That is why John Blank, an African, is at those celebrations. 
Now, it may seem that what I've just said is a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Because in Europe, Africans were part of the ordinary celebrations of the Holy Roman Empire, of Spain and Portugal, of um, the Venetian state. The higher, inverted commas, cultures of Europe had Africans as part of the pageantry and display, both musical and otherwise, including the Nuremberg Festival, but we'll come to that later on, including the Nuremberg Festival, um, that, that they were part and parcel of those events throughout the 15th and early 16th century. Henry VII, who first employed him, felt that he needed that African to represent that culture. So he's actually demonstrating that England is catching up with European fashions by including John Blanc because those European fashions include Africans as well. And England, to be part of that fashion, needs to have its own African representative. Now, this is the exact opposite of how historians often uh, interpret and translate John Blanc's presence. Um, it is the opposite. He provides validity to the event, not the other way, way, way round. You know, and, and this is also explained by the fact that he petitions for a pay increase. I think it's about four times <laughs> what he earns already. And he gets his pay increase. And not only that, he get, also gets um, um, a special commission for a purple gown for his wedding. We don't know who he married. Um, and, and other things too, which demonstrate that he was needed and wanted um, within the English court. Um, and that his presence was important. So these people who operate within the court have a particular role which demonstrates that England has arrived. And the monarchy of England, including Henry VII, Henry VIII, Mary and Elizabeth, continued to employ people of African descent in their court. Mary employed an African within her royal stables. Elizabeth had a favorite little blackamoor, uh, that's the quotation, who was constantly around her and who she constantly dressed up in famous attire. We don't know what happened to him. Yeah, but she had this young, because why did she do this? Because it was part of European fashion. The members of England's Privy Council during Elizabeth's reign, many of those people had African attendants and servants. From Robert Cecil, who had an African servant called Fortunatus, um, uh, um, to es the Earl of Essex, um, um, etc. These individuals had African servants in their households, um, often sometimes um, running parts of their households or as their personal attendants. That Francis Drake um, had African um, uh, servant and friend called Diego Negro. Um, uh, Walter Raleigh um, had an African servant, etc., etc. So, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So most historians claim that Africans were all enslaved. What has your research proved to be more likely? Okay, thank you for that. Um, yeah, the, the, the question of enslavement seems to dominate black history. And, and people use it as the starting point to try and understand anything about Africans outside of Africa and even Africans inside Africa. That, and we don't do that with any other human group. We don't do it with any other human group. Do we take one moment in their history and use it to define the totality of their history? We don't do that. But we do with Africans because we are still looking through the lens of Eurocentric scientific racism. And, and this means that we are unable to see Africans as human beings and as being part and parcel of human agency for the whole period of human history, from the beginning of time all the way till now, or the beginning of human history, at least, until all the way till now. But that is, in fact, the case. So enslavement dominates African narratives in a way in which it shouldn't, but I understand why it does, because undoubtedly the enslavement of African people was a crime against humanity. And the systematic effects of it have been disastrous. So I understand why that preoccupation exists, but the preoccupation doesn't help us understand the African presence, especially in the 15th and 16th century. So what we have to understand about the 15th and 16th century is that Africa as a continent was ruled by independent African kings and queens, the whole continent. And as I said, up until 1492, large parts of Spain and Portugal were also ruled by Moorish people who are of African descent. And other parts of Europe also had very strong populations of African people like Gascony, um, uh, uh, parts of uh, France, um, other parts of France, um, Poitiers, um, and Holland, what we now call Holland or the Netherlands, also had a, had a strong African presence, um, especially around Amsterdam. And so these populations that existed, some of them, hailed from the independent kingdoms in the continent of Africa that they came from. Some of them hailed from the Iberian Peninsula, where they themselves had once ruled and been independent rulers. Some of them were servants and had lowly positions and had been brought to Europe by pirates, traders, merchants, and what have you. So there would be a mixture, I'm just trying to simplify, but there'd be a mixture of at least three, these three types of Africans with these three source, these three um, um, uh, origins. Their origins would help to determine their status. If they came from West African ruling powers, they would not be enslaved in Europe at this time. 
It would not be, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't happen, not at this time, right? So if they came from the Iberian Peninsula, they may have been reduced to servitude. They may, but that may not have been their continuous status. And even those who were brought may have been brought to a position of servitude or occasionally enslavement, but that doesn't mean that that had been their perpetual position. So what I'm trying to say is that in early modern Europe, it was very difficult to keep Africans as perpetual slaves. Certainly it was difficult in England. It was very difficult in Holland. Spain and Portugal, they were a little more efficient at taking away um, African rights. But even there, a significant proportion of those Africans were in very high positions within those societies. And other societies um, didn't have um, uh, race laws at all. So what I'm saying is that people's position would depend on their origins, would depend on their occupations, and would depend on how they arrived in Europe. And even if they had arrived in Europe, in a lowly position, they, it would be, in, if they were in England, it would be relatively easy for them to change that, that enslaved position and for them to obtain another position if they had a trade, if they had a skill, or if they had an ability. I, I'll give an example. Um, uh, the, the, in 14... 1470, um, Maria um, Moriana was an African woman living in Southampton. Her employer attempted to treat her as an enslaved person in England. Now, her employer was from Venice, from what is now Italy. But he attempted to have her treated as if she were an enslaved person. But she couldn't write English or Latin, so she wasn't a polygot, um, as some of these more people were, but she did have connections. And when they discovered that, that she was being treated in this way, they informed her that, no, this isn't correct, well, what is happening? And she then realized that this treatment was incorrect. She petitioned um, the, the courts of chancery and when the matter went to court, it said at that point in time, this is 14, uh, uh, 14 um, the, the, uh, the end of the 15th century, when it went to court, it was stated that, look, her ethnicity does not determine her status. Her status is determined by her status, which seems like a circumlocutious argument. And then it says what she assumes her status to be is what her status becomes. That's quite a complicated one, right? But in other words, it says that if she doesn't think that she's a slave, then she's not a slave. That's what the court are kind of saying in their roundup uh, legal phrase. And it says that her employer has committed an illegal act by not giving her meat, um, not allowing her to um, have uh, three times a day off um, uh, uh, so that she can recreate herself, um, and that he must give her meat and drink three times a day and give her you know, a day off for church and what have you. And that he is breaking the law by preventing her from enjoying um, uh, those rights. So they actually found against him in an ambiguous kind of way. There are other people too, very similar. 
who um, uh, often faced with an employer who is not English, but from somewhere else where he is used to treating people in an inferior way and then attempts to treat the African that he has brought with him to England in the same inferior way, the English courts say, no, you can't treat that African in that way because this is person is domiciled or, or whatever, and they have rights, natural rights. Okay, that changes really? later in the 18th century. The 18th century, that changes. There are laws that change that. The, 18th, um, um, the, the, the middle of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century, um, uh, some of that changes. But in the 16th and the 15th century, that's how the law stood. So in short, what, what I'm saying is that, that the majority of this population are not enslaved in Europe. Yeah, with the exception of Spain and Portugal, which is a more complicated matter. But if it comes to England or France or what is now Germany, uh, what is now Switzerland um, uh, uh, and the Eastern Bloc countries where African presence existed, these people, for the most part, were not enslaved. The Ottoman Empire in Turkey is slightly different. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So on History Hack, we have... Um a virtual pub and the virtual pub was named after um we, we basically did a poll on our twitter page uh, as the greatest ship of all time and and it won as the mary rose so you did some really interesting research on the subject didn't you and her crew and things like that tell us what you found yes thank you for asking um the well the research came about because um a tv documentary um they were creating a documentary on the Mary Rose, not on the ethnicity of the crew members, just on the Mary Rose. And they were looking for a Tudor historian to talk in general terms about the Mary Rose, and they approached me. And as part of their investigation, they took eight random crew members, just eight, and explored their ethnicity um, using you know, the scientific method. And I was meant to comment on the crew members, etc. Uh, initially, I've been brought in in a little, to do a little tiny segment at the beginning and at the end of the program, just talking about the general history. Um, I said to them, uh, "You're looking at the ethnicity of these um, eight people. Don't be surprised if you're you're shocked." They say, "What do you mean?" I said, "Don't be surprised um, because it's not." What I think that you're look, what you think you're going to find is something. Now, what you're going to find is something different from what you think. And, and and anyway, as the program went on, so of the eight, oh, what I also should say is that the TV program also employed some scientists to sort of carbon date the bodies and to explore, you know, to to examine the bones, um, to examine the 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 the, the, the 
by examining the bones, you can find out um, the diet, uh, the things. And with the diet, you can find out where the food was grown that they ate. You know, you can examine all these different things. You can even examine um, through bone structure, whether they grew up in a hot country or cold country, all these sorts of things. So there is a relative amount of certainty about certain questions of ethnicity that can be drawn from the study of bones. All right. So as they began to investigate these eight, they found out that half of, that, of these random eight were not born in England. So that's the first thing. 50% of the eight were not born. That was their first shock. We've got, we got this very English crew, what we thought, and a very English ship during a very English moment of time. And half of these eight are not born in England. That meant, or it could mean, shock horror, that it might mean that the whole of the whole Mary Rose crew, that 50% of the Mary Rose crew were not English. It might mean that. And if that was true, perhaps 50% of the English Navy at this time, the actual, were also not English. All of these sorts of um, uh, equations were being battled about. I said it doesn't necessarily prove any of that, but it's interesting that of the eight, four were, were not English born. Okay, so then the, of those four, one was believed to come from what is now modern day Italy. Yes, a second, I think, was supposed to be Spanish, just Spanish. A third person was of mixed West African and North African heritage, mixed with white English heritage. And another was of North African with West African heritage and Iberian heritage. So it's actually two. So, but they felt that it was so controversial to have two of those four as people of African descent that the audience wouldn't quite <laughs> swallow all of it too much for them. So they focused on the one person who was of North African, West African, Iberian heritage. That was the one that they focused on. So a, a, a number of things come from this. At first of all, they were, you know, pulling out their hair, literally trying to, trying to sort of um, uh, explain away. And then they eventually came to the conclusion that we can't explain it away. We're going to have to um, get involved. We have to get Onyeka to come and explain these narratives. And he's going to have to be in the program more. And we're going to have to talk about this more because the ramifications are big. I was not surprised at all because I know that navies, especially the English Navy, has a strong tradition of multi-ethnicity. And I know that England has been very successful in getting lots of people of various ethnicities to fight for its cause, and that many of these people have settled in England and sort of been assimilated and what have you. I said that it isn't just, it isn't just the important fact about the composition of the crew, but... These people are not isolated individuals, but they had families. In Portsmouth, 
They, they would have had children with people. They would have been married to people. They would have lived. Therefore, they have, you know, there, must, there might be communities and families. Could it be that those families and communities represented the ethnic composition of the crew? Or at least it was worthy of investigation, but that was beyond the remit of the program. So that was my involvement. And then, of course, it developed. Uh, and, um, uh, and we had to try and explain with narratives who these people were, why they were fighting for um, England, um, what part they would have played, um, uh, and what it means for the rest of Tudor society. So that was my involvement um, in the Mary Rose um, uh, activities. Uh, and, and of course, um, what later became uh, that documentary, um, which, which had resonance with a lot of people. And then the, the, the national press got involved, even papers like the Daily Mail, uh, um, uh, the Sunday Times, the Daily Telegraph and all the rest of it. For a moment, they suspended um, whatever uh, political perspective they were pursuing and got on board with a relatively objective um, um, discussion on, on this. And apparently it's been watched by over 2 million people. Um, so it's, it's a, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So how was ethnicity important to the Tudors? Yes, ethnicity was fundamentally important to the Tudors. Uh, they were of Welsh French extraction and constantly reminded of it <laughs> by the English noble by the English nobles that surrounded them. And um, the Tudors in the form of Henry VIII married Catherine of Aragon, who was Spanish. Therefore, Mary had both Welsh, French, and Spanish heritage. This ethnicity was fundamentally part of her character. And she married the the, the, her cousin, the Spanish king, Philip II, who was Spanish, as, as I've just described. So ethnicity... Uh, played a vital role in qualifying, but not necessarily in the way that we would imagine. These people are not ethnically English, and yet they are the rulers ruling England. Many of the people who are within the court come from the various ethnicities of the rulers who have assembled those courts. So her court will include Spanish people, Iberian people, many of whom were, some of whom were of Moorish extraction. It will also include people from other parts of Europe, because those are the cultured parts of Europe. This tradition continues throughout all the Tudors, um, that there's um, uh, that continuous presence. So the question of ethnicity is fundamentally important. It's fundamentally important, but not necessarily in the way that we might now think. There wasn't a coherent, systematic concept of race as developed in the 18th and 19th century with John Frederick Blumenbach and, and, uh, uh, and these others, um, uh, Carl Linnaeus. There wasn't a coherent racial ideology, you know, like Eugene Fisher with the Nazis. It wasn't a coherent racial philosophy as we get in the 20th century or the 19th century or the 18th century or even the 17th century. There wasn't that coherent philosophy. People like Francis Bacon, end of the 16th century, would 
speculate on questions of ethnicity and would speculate that color complexion of human beings is purely the result of the sun. It's not actually, but, but, but he would speculate that it is and that a white person, a white family who had a child born in Africa, these are his words, the child would be born black and a black family who had a, a, a child in Europe would be born white. That was his perspective on things, that it was purely a matter of complexion and sun and nothing to do with what's happening inside. That was the, that was the philosophy. Others seeing generations of people of African descent born and living in England and maintaining their color despite sometimes marrying into the white English population and the child still coming out complexioned um, with menelin, then they had to revisit their idea of ethnicity. And when they went to Spain and Portugal, they saw Moorish people, some of whom had been there for 700 years, that's 10, 12, 15, 16 generations, and had also maintained their color. That also made them question the idea. And so then you begin to have some um, uh, writers like Thomas More who, who think that complexion arises as a result of the humors, the humors that you have inside of you. Um, your liver, your kidney, or something perhaps carried in your blood. They question that. Um, and then later on, people like Thomas Brown sort of tries to work out how complexion comes about. Is it a mixture of sun? Is it a mixture of diet, the food that you eat? Is it a mixture of, um, of your blood? They don't use the word genetics, so that's a later thing. So they would question that. They have these ideas. They, um, and people did write about such things in the period in time that we're talking about. And what's most interesting is that they wrote about these ideas referring to the people that they met, saw, and spoke to. And some of those people were people of African descent who they observed and saw in England. And they witnessed what happened with generations of these people. And they could see that the complexion often stayed even one, two, or three generations down the line. So that made them question the idea that it was just the sun that made people the complexion that, of, that they are. Um, it really we, wasn't understood at all, was it? I mean, it really was a time when, when people were learning about colour and, and race well, and ethnicity. It isn't understood now, Kate. Well, no, <laughs> it's not understood now, Kate. It's not understood now, and and, and sometimes our ideas about color and ethnicity are more backward than theirs. Um, uh, I get asked, yeah. um, despite the fact that my great aunt came here in 1921, over 100 years ago. Um, you know, you know, how long have you? You know, how how are you finding the weather? How are you? How are you? Are you okay um, with the weather? Um, uh, where where do you come from? You know, uh, what what's it like where you come from? And and this is after so many generations um, uh, of being present here for, for so long. So people still associate the complexion with a place outside of England. Mm. And this is despite the Enlightenment, um, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, 
the scientific revolution and everything else that has come thereafter. So I'm not sure that we are more enlightened in many ways. In fact, I think that in some ways um, we might even be <laughs> more backward <laughs> than, 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 the, than the kind of um, confused but flexible ideas um, that yeah. you sometimes see in, in, in Tudor society. And, and now I, some ideas are confused, but they have a kind of flexibility about them. Whereas now people have an inflection. For example, I, I, I watched an interview um, with David Lammy. And uh, uh, in the interview, this woman, David Lammy was saying how, you know, his, his, his parents had come uh, from Guyana, you know, since what the fifties, forties, a very long time ago, anyway, you know, and he's second generation British born. And he said he is English, but he's also African Caribbean. And he has these heritage, which is a part of what he is. And, and the woman on the other side said, well, you can't be, you can't be. He said, I am, I'm born in England. My parents have lived here most of their lives. I am that, but I am also this too. No, no, you can't be. You, you know, you're black, you're blackness, you can't be. And, and so she was saying effectively that he can't be what in fact he is. Yeah. Uh, so should we I'm complicate sure this a little enlightened. bit more? So I'm going to chuck in, <laughs> complicate this a little bit more. So in theory, because I'm white and from a Eastern European background, does that give me a right to be in England? Well, to some people it would do. I don't think some so. Some people it would do. I don't think. Yeah, do you know but, what? If we're going down the same yeah. David Lammy um, idea that because, yeah. you know, his family, because I view myself the same way. I view myself as uh, British because that's what the culture that I was brought up with, but I was brought up in also a Polish culture. So I'm, in, I'm one of those people that's in between. So you can't Absolutely. give one people a pass and another people not. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it just, I don't understand that kind of concept at all. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so I, I, I'm not sure. We often like to think in modernity that we are superior to the people of the past. And the people of the past were these stupid, ignorant, um, uh, racist people. And sometimes they were. Um, but, but then sometimes they weren't. Sometimes it's us who have more hang-ups than they have. And, and certainly in Tudor society... And um, we find people of African descent who are integrated and assimilated within English society, married into English society, married within their communities and families and living through generations um, within English society. For example, Henry Anthony Jetto lived in Holt, Worcestershire, came there in 1597 in a lowly position, was baptized, um, became an independent gardener set up his own household, um, earned enough money to buy his own land, uh, established the status as a yeoman, got married to a woman called Presidia, had one child out of wedlock called John Cuthbert, had five children with Presidia. Those five children and John Cuthbert went on to have 32 other children, all living in Holt, Worcestershire. And then those 32 children went on to have 100 or more. I lost count actually looking for them. Great, um, um, what, what were effectively his great, um, uh, or, or no, they were grandchildren, yeah, grandchildren. And then they went on to have further um, set of great grandchildren. His descendants are alive today. 
And there's lots of them in Holt, Worcestershire. Lots of them. Um, many of the people who have been in Holt in Worcestershire for generation after generation are direct descendants of Henry Anthony Jetto. Direct descendants. But they are phenotypically white, right? Um, and may not know that they have that heritage. Uh, some of them do know they have that heritage. I've met a, a, a number um, of those local people. And uh, uh, one family in particular, uh, uh, Peter Bluck, a very nice man. And um, uh, he knew that Henry Anthony Jetto um, was his ancestor on both sides of his family tree. But he wasn't sure how to explain it because <laughs> he, he married a local woman. He's got, he's got um, and his mother and his mother and father were both local. He's got um, Henry Antigetta on several points of his family tree from several different lines, you see. So, um, so that is, a, is, a quite, is a quite a common thing. It's a, quite a common thing in this society, um, but it's just not been excavated properly. It's quite a common thing. Um, and it's part and parcel of the history of this country. Uh, I'm sorry, you didn't hear me because I've had myself muted, but I was sitting there on the camera going, wow, that's, that's, that's <laughs> absolutely incredible. That's, that is, you, you wouldn't think of something, how look, looking at a local area, how far back you can go. And yeah. it's just something that I don't really study that far back in ancestry, but that's incredible that... For several sides of the family, he is descended. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. There was a person called Scipio Kennedy, uh, an African man who lived in Lanarkshire, Lanarkshire in Scotland. Yeah, this is not even Edinburgh. This is Lanarkshire <laughs> in Scotland. And his descendants, his descendants are alive today. He's from the 17th century, um, but his descendants are alive today. Um, there, there are other. There is a. Um, oh, I've forgotten his name. I've forgotten his name in Hertfordshire and his descendants are alive today too. I've forgotten. Um, but, but yeah, so the, these, these people aren't, this isn't a deceased line. The line is still living, even though it's 400 years old, 500 years old. It's, but the descendants of this line don't look like me. Even though their ancestors may have looked like me. <laughs> yeah that's amazing really interesting <laughs> i'm speechless i'm gobsmacked i think this is incredible i think do you know what we could have our own podcast just on this very subject that just we can talk about for 45 minutes on this one subject it's just incredible right do you know what let's let's move on to a subject I, I really want to touch on this really quickly because it is it is a hot topic in the news yeah. the media on social media every everyone is talking about this and yeah. that's bridgerton and Anne boleyn uh, okay and they have an ethnically diverse cast so the question is yeah. um is accurate casting does it matter and is it more important to represent history and change people or change people's fundamental beliefs or show cultural diversity or do all of these three things come together? What do you think? Well, you can create a fantasy. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor's from Wales and uh, she played Cleopatra. <laughs> this is also Richard true. Burton's from Richard, Richard Burton's from Wales 
and he played Anthony, um, Lance Olivier's English from London, uh, and he regularly used to play Roman generals, um, French kings, um, uh, you know, German whatever. Um, we, we regularly um, cast people in, in many different ways to represent something that we want to represent. I mean, art is art. However, if we want to create some art that has some semblance of connection to authenticity, it is always good, I think, to reflect that where the evidence leads. So perhaps Elizabeth Taylor, um, ethnically, may not be the most appropriate person to play Cleopatra. Perhaps Halle Berry should be, even though Halle Berry is an American. Um, if you were looking at the ethnicity of mixtures um, about what we think Cleopatra would be in terms of ethnic heritage, um, she's a mixture of various different ethnic heritages, both Macedonian, Egyptian, and Southern Egyptian, all coming together in one. That's what the Ptolemy line was, um, uh, that, that kind of ethnicity. Um, uh, or if we were going to get someone to play Barack Obama, we probably wouldn't get Russell Crowe. I wouldn't um, get, Russell get Russell Crowe for Crow. anything, personally. <laughs> <but> <laughs> or Brad Pitt. We wouldn't get Brad Pitt or Russell Crowe to play um, um, Barack Obama. We probably wouldn't. Um, we could do. It's possible to create a, a fantastical perspective um, where Brad Pitt um, plays Barack Obama, but because the ethnicity of Barack Obama has been such a central issue in his presidency, it's probably better to get an actor of colour to play Barack Obama. And in the same way, or, or similar way, when we get characters from history where ethnicity has played a part in their history, it's often better to get a character that in some ways can reflect that ethnicity. Yeah. And that goes both ways, in fact. So Anne Boleyn was well known as coming from a very inverted commas, traditional English family. Now, you can create a fantasy in which she doesn't. But that's part of the history of what happened to her the, with the Boleyn family. However, having said that, there are references to her being dark of hair and complexion, but the darkness isn't the darkness of being a person of color. It's being dark within the reference point, within the framework of Englishness, whiteness. Um, so she was a dark haired person um, with dark eyes, but you can create a fantasy where she's something else and play on that darkness if you wish, but you don't really need to because there's a way of bringing in ethnic diversity within the Tudor period that is congruent with the evidence if you do some work. But if you're lazy, if you're lazy about it, as unfortunately some of these TV companies are, I know I work with them. I, I know I work with them um, on consultations and they can be remarkably um, um, uh, uh, lethargic and just say, oh, just m m make this actor or actress this or that and i said why why do that when you could do this or do this or do this you know so th sometimes there's a bit of laziness there um okay so that's the amberlin thing put that to one side okay the bridgerton thing the bridgerton thing is very similar 
it, there's a kind of, I know it comes from a book. The book actually isn't about ethnic diversity, but they wanted colorblind casting or something of that nature or to create a um, alternative world in where that kind of diversity could exist. But you could take most of those characters and base them on real people and change the scenarios and narratives and make a powerful, historically relevant and accurate series without turning it into entirely a fantasy. For example, um, Nathaniel Wells. The life of Nathaniel Wells is very, very similar to the main character, main male character in that story. Nathaniel Wells was a person of dual heritage. Uh, his father uh, was a slave trading um, uh, businessman, a landed gentleman. His mother was a woman of African descent, um, an enslaved woman of African descent. He was the product of that union. So he was a man of color. He was an extraordinarily wealthy, powerful, philandering um, gentleman who was the toast of his area and well-known and extraordinarily popular within Monmouthshire where he lived. So we don't have to make a fantasy. We could make a television series about Nathaniel Wells. Will we? Probably not. <laughs> so people will watch Bridgerton and, oh, well, that's a fantasy that never happened. And then when we'd say, well, actually, there was Nathaniel Wells who lived like this and, and was the sheriff, the sheriff of Monmouth, the sheriff of Monmouth, a landed estated gentleman, uh, one of the most powerful people in Monmouth. People say, nah, that's a fantasy, too. No, that's actually historically accurate. I wanted to ask how we can change the false perception that British history is white centric. Um, do you think accurate historical accounts could help combat racism, could yeah. go some way towards improving our understanding? Yeah, we're, we're doing it now. You're doing it in this wonderful um, podcast, this wonderful series of podcasts. You invited me and it's part of the process. It's a chipping, chipping away um, at these um, bastions of, 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 uh, of exceptionalism. Um, you're, you are, we are doing it now. The process that we refer to is decolonization. Uh, we're decolonizing, we're helping to decolonize our minds. We're opening up our own perspectives and we're getting to see the world through different, through different lenses. And most of all, we're trying to learn what the people at the time thought about things and themselves. That's the key thing. The major problem that I initially had was not understanding how people in Tudor England, what they actually thought about themselves. And I had to separate what I thought about them to understand what they thought about themselves and the people that lived in and with them, the people that lived in their community, how they saw difference, how they saw strangeness, how they saw identity, because it's slightly different from how we see it. And they had, in some ways, an open perspective and in some ways, a closed perspective. And I had to understand all that. So the key thing, if there was anything to take away, is research and reading. Read and research as much as you can on any given subject. Um, this country has a very interesting history. It's really, really interesting. But that's not the history that we get taught. You're right. I've, I, didn't, I wasn't taught any of this at school. 
none of it so you said about reading where where should what would you recommend i mean you've written several books yeah so will you tell tell us quickly about about what you've written yeah so the there's the book um that i wrote 2013 2014 um uh it's called blackamoors um africans in Tudor England, their present status and origins. Um, I think it's a good book to start with. Then there's my second book written in 2019 called England's Other Countrymen, Black Tudor Society. There are also books by Imitus Habib called Black Lives in the English Archives, Imprints of the Invisible. Um, uh, there is Miranda Kaufman's book, um, Black Tudors. Uh, there are lots and lots of articles. There is a wonderful book, wonderful book, wonderful book by David Northup called Africa's Discovery of Europe, <laughs> which is uh, Africa's Discovery of Europe. Yeah, <laughs> so, so yeah, that's right. So, so it, and that's a very good book written about the 15th and, and 16th century. Um, taken from the African perspective of Africans discovering Europe. Exactly. So it, it, it's, it's a good book. So um, uh, there's a, there are a range of um, books that are out there now, um, which can help us have a different perspective, a, a more contextual perspective. We'll make sure to stock your books in our online bookstores. So ladies and gentlemen, make sure you head there to grab yourself a copy. Thank you so much. This has been just uh, mind-blowingly insightful and I could listen to this all day so you definitely have to come back and what we should do is definitely go into so much more detail on something a little bit more specific because Absolutely. you can talk and I'm happy to listen. I'm assuming our listeners are too, because that's just absolutely excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Alina. Thank you. I'm Kate. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 